You're seeing a lot of support for nuclear now. I think the momentum behind nuclear is growing more and more with climate change. We're in a very good path moving forward to build out a lot more nuclear to do provide that zero carbon emitting energy, you know, 24-7, 365. Hello there. How are you all doing? Did you have a good weekend? I did. Wonderful weekend. Quite a chilled one. We didn't have any football, so, uh, well, I don't say... I didn't go and watch any, I did go and watch a game, but I did also chill out. My team didn't play, so I was a little bit more relaxed, hanging out with the family. I hope you've got some time with your family too. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today on the show, I've got Everett Redmond. So in my last show with Anthony Gerard, The Truth About Nuclear, I don't want to say it changed my perspective on nuclear, but it has definitely evolved. I've been going down this energy rabbit hole ever since I really interviewed Alex Epstein, trying to understand how the energy sector works, how grids work, how energy generation works. You know, I've learned a lot about it. And I would say with these two conversations, the one with Everett and the one with Anthony Jarrett, I've definitely had my thinking evolve. So it's very cool. I do want to get somebody on to talk about fusion at some point as well. Danny is working hard on finding that person, but this was a perfect follow-up to learn about these small modular reactors and other things happening in nuclear. Also, just a side note, uh, I've mentioned previously, we've refreshed and relaunched our Patreon. There's a whole bunch of exclusive content on there. You've got shows early, shows without ads. You can contribute on the Discord server to the shows we're making. Uh, We will be out in New York soon and recording exclusive content there, only available to patrons. So if you want to go and check that out, that is patreon.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Outside of that, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Good morning, Everett. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, so, we make a Bitcoin show, and uh, one of the hottest topics of the last couple of years has been discussing energy, the energy mix, um, how Bitcoiners can work with energy companies, with energy grids. And because of that, we've kind of ended up going down the energy rabbit hole and learning a lot about it. We've made shows about uh, solar power. We made a show yesterday about nuclear and so, despite the fact that you're not like a hardened Bitcoiner, you're a really great guest for our audience because nuclear is such a hot topic. So, uh, as the audience won't know you, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Tell us a bit about your background and what you're doing now. Sure thing. So, uh, Everett Redman, I'm a nuclear engineer uh, by training. Um, I work currently for a company called Oklo. We're developing a small liquid metal cooled fast reactor, uh, so a micro reactor. Um, prior to Oklo, and I started with Oklo in September of 2022, prior to that, I was with the Nuclear Energy Institute, the trade association for the commercial nuclear power industry here in the U.S. Uh, was with them for 16 years and um, focused on advanced reactors. So I've been interfacing with the advanced reactor community in the United States for quite some time. And then prior to um, NEI, I was with a company, Holtec International, uh, working on back end of the fuel cycle, dry cask storage systems for commercial nuclear plants. So, uh, and in my spare time, I do a lot of scuba diving. In fact, teach scuba diving as well. Oh, with, wow. a, with a shop up in DC called Blue Planet Scuba. I have never scuba dived. Oh, you should give it a try. Oh, man. So, uh, I've uh, snorkeled. <laughs> um, no, I've never, it's one of those things I've never done. Um, I, I've always felt it. 
I always felt it seems a little bit claustrophobic. So, you know, I have found that very few people actually have that issue. Okay. Um, but what you can do, if you find yourself at a resort sometime, you can do what we call a resort course, discover scuba diving. So you'd go out with an instructor, they would take you down and you'd be with them the whole time and you get to try it out. You won't go too deep and just get the experience. Yeah. And if you like it, you go on and get trained. I think it's the whole mask and tank. It just kind of freaks me out. Oh, I say that. One of the things I have done is I've tried over the years to train myself to hold my breath longer. So my record's three minutes, five seconds. Okay, so you could do a lot of the free diving. We've got some friends who do free diving. I personally don't have any great interest in that. I'll take the air with me. I had a little go of that in Turks. I was trying to get, what are these those shells at the bottom? I can't remember what they're called. Like conks, is it? Yeah, conks, yeah. 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 Um, but you get to a certain pressure and you feel like like you get that like, in your head and you feel like everyone's closing in. Well, you obviously have to equalize as you go down. Right. So just like in the plane, when you go up, you get a pressure changes and then you start coming down in the airplane, you have to clear your ears. So you have to do the same thing when you scuba dive or snorkel. Yeah. When you're holding your breath, though, you, it's a, you don't have much time to equalize. That's true. And also when you're swimming about, you can't do three minutes, five seconds. Three minutes, five seconds was still in a swimming pool with my kids tapping me on the shoulder every 15 seconds. That's not impressive. Moving. Yeah. It's just a weird thing I do. I don't know why I do it. I'm a weirdo. Anyway, listen, welcome to the show. So how, how did you get into nuclear? Why nuclear? Is this an interest or was it? So for me, when I went to college, um, it ended up being a great combination between mechanical engineering and physics. Okay. Uh, and I'd had an interest in nuclear prior to that, but I didn't necessarily think that's what I'd major in. But it uh, turned out I love it quite a bit. And I tended to focus on what's called reactor physics, so core design sort of stuff. I'm not a, not a thermal hydraulics person. What does that mean? So thermal hydraulics is the fluid flow, heat, and mass transfer sort of things. I focus on, when I was doing the work anyways, focused on core design, fuel assemblies, how they configured, uh, and how the neutrons and stuff move around and you know, get the reaction going. And I guess with uh, a nuclear reactor, there's lots of different specialisms that go into Oh, yes. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could imagine, um, you know, the thing that surprised me yesterday when we uh, discussed nuclear with um, uh, Anthony Jarrett. Anthony Jarrett, Anthony yeah. Jarrett. Um, when he told me he worked on the um, reactor on one of the aircraft carriers, mm -hmm. I was like, how many people work on that? And I was assuming he was going to say that like 20, 30. What was it, 400? Yeah, four, 200 for each reactor, I think he said. Yeah. Oh, that's impressive. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah that, that yeah. kind of blew my mind. Um, but yeah, so we, we've, have to go, we've had to go down this rabbit hole learning a lot more about nuclear. Um, not even just for the podcast, in fairness. Uh, I live in the UK, and you probably saw from my accent. We have a real energy crisis at the moment. People can't afford to heat their homes. Uh, energy bills have gone up three, four, five hundred percent. And we are reliant on other countries for our energy. Um, yeah, a range of different ways we're importing. I think we're getting part nuclear power from France. I think we're importing uh, liquid gas. I think there's a range of things we're doing. But we aren't sovereign, self-sovereign with our own nuclear energy, mm -hmm. uh, our own energy, because we haven't invested in the infrastructure. And so we've been trying to understand why have the green lobby has been so successful in campaigning against uh, nuclear energy. And the interview yesterday was great. I learned a few things. I learned, yeah, I didn't know this. I didn't know nobody died at Fukushima. Um, uh, we were told that there was no statistical increase in cancers in Fukushima. 
Um, nobody died at Three Mile Island, and 46 deaths were attributed to Chernobyl. And and so, in terms of actual deaths related, I know the risk is different, but deaths related mm-hmm. to nuclear energy, it's basically one mine collapse. <laughs> and that's a crude way of putting it, but in lots of different energy, parts of the energy sector, lots of other people have died in multiple ways. So it feels like nuclear has been cast as this big, scary uh, way of producing energy, but actually its uh, safety history is fairly good outside of Chernobyl. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so what do you think that's been? Well, it's one of the issues, I think, is just radiation is something you don't see. Right. You can't tell around. I mean, the reality, though, is radiation's everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's naturally occurring radiation. As you get in an airplane and you fly cross country or cross the Atlantic, you're getting more radiation because you're physically closer to the sun. Or, or eating a banana, we found out yesterday. Exactly. We called it a radiation bar now. Yep. Yep. Nope. That's true as well. And then certain. Um, uh, buildings that are made out of granite and things like that will have a little bit more natural radiation because of just what's in the rock. Um, and then you live in places that are higher up, higher elevations, you get more radiation too because, again, you're closer to the sun. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't see it, you can't feel it. So I think that's part of it. And what radiation can do is ultimately lead to some cancer. Um, and cancer is scary for everyone. Another thing that came up yesterday was the discussion around Chernobyl. And I I can imagine for people like yourself working in the modern nuclear industry, Mm -hmm. modern design, that any comparison to that is hugely frustrating. It's probably like comparing a Model T to a Tesla. Even worse. Yeah, there's a few things. Um, The design of the plant was not able to withstand the accident that occurred. So that's a fundamental issue. Um, You know, the plants that we operate in the United States have containment buildings around them. They're designed to withstand the worst case accidents. Um, The newer plants, like the one my company is working on, Oklo's working on, um, are much smaller, have more inherent safety features in them. And so, you know, they're more robust to begin with. Um, But the other thing about Chernobyl, which is exceptionally frustrating, why the comparison is a bad one, is they basically took the operating manual and threw it out the window. You know, so they got themselves into a position that was, um, that the plant could not withstand and they sh- it shouldn't have been done. Yeah, that came up as well with Three Mile Island in that they didn't follow correct procedures. Uh, I think with Three Mile Island, they ran into some challenges after the accident initiated, but not, not the same situation as Chernobyl. It's not, it's not a fair comparison between the two. Right, okay. But it was still human error, would you say? Uh, the human error contributed to it. Um, and then there was um, human factors. So how do you deal with all of the information coming in? How are the control systems set up? How many alarms are going off? Where is the information being presented, where are the panels? So there's a huge effort that goes into, um, if you think about it, think about an airplane in a cockpit. How do you lay out that information so that it's easiest for the pilot to access what they need when they need it? And so these are things that we've learned in the nuclear industry over the years as well. Um, And especially Three Mile Island, I help with some of that um, human factors in terms of how the information is presented to you. And then lastly on Fukushima, what we learned was actually uh, it was the position of the diesel generators were too low and that's what flooded 
which caused so yeah an issue there. Fukushima was um, the earthquake came along, the plant shut down just like normal. Yeah, no problem. Everything shut down. Diesel generators kicked in. Everything was great. And then the tsunami came in and basically wiped out everything. Yeah, all of the electrical equipment at the same time um, just took it all out. Yeah, it was, it was a really interesting thing to go through because and, and most of what we focused on yesterday was the safety side of things. I think today with you, we, we want to focus a little more on the innovation, kind of sure. what's happening, what's coming. But a good starting point is kind of to understand where we're at. Um, uh, I know that, was it France, we, there's about 60 reactors? I think 56. 56 maybe, reactors. Yeah. We know in the UK, I think there's about three. I don't What's the size of the fleet here in the US? 92. 92. I like the fact they call it a fleet. We've heard a lot about uh, the difficulty in trying to get new nuclear plants commissioned and also built. It, it takes a long time. What impact has that had in terms of the current fleet? Uh, is it aging to the point that some of these need decommissioning? What, what's the current status of the fleet? So reactors in the United States were originally licensed for 40 years. And then all of them, uh, almost all of them, have been extended to 60 years. And some of them, um, and more and more, will be extended out to 80 years. So we're going to operate the fleet here, for the most part, out to 80 years. Um, And then what we've seen over time is there was some shutdowns, premature shutdowns, we call them, uh, for economic reasons. So in certain areas, um, dealing with wind and solar and transmission constraints created some economic challenges for them. That dynamics shifted a bit now. And what we're seeing here in the United States is the fleet is going strong. We operate 24-7, 365. Um, and we operate for 18 to 24 months before we shut down for refueling. And many of the plants will operate what we call breaker to breaker. So from the time they start up to the time they shut down, they're pretty much running at full power or close to full power. Talk to me about refueling. So refueling, when we shut down a reactor, we take out about a third of the core right now for the existing fleet and um, then put that in a spent fuel pool. So basically a large pool of water sits there for a while, a few years, and then we move it into a dry cask storage system. Yeah, Jared, uh, Andy Jared brought up yesterday that in the smaller, newer reactors, are these these uh, Generation 4 mm-hmm. reactors, that it's a possibility that you can take these fuel rods from the uh, old kind of aging fleet and they can still be used in the newer design. Yeah, so let me talk about what we're doing at Oaklow for a yeah, second. tell me. So our machine, as I said, is a liquid metal fast reactor. So um, it's designed to... Uh, stay operational for a couple decades without refueling. So for one, extending out that time between when you need to refuel. Just very quickly, how long does a refueling process take? So for the fleet, they can get it done, I'd say on average about 30 days. Okay. They bring in a a lot of people in uh, to supplement the workforce. They lay out everything they need to do and they go with it. What happens during that 30 days in terms of, is there no power coming from? That's correct. Okay, so you have to plan additional elsewhere power? Yeah, for the grid. Uh, And they do most of the, um, here in the United States, most of the refuelings occur in the spring or the fall. 
So you don't need the air conditioners and you don't need the heaters. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You tend not to do it in the middle of summertime. Okay. Sorry. I'll let you carry back. Yeah. So for us, um, you were just talking about reusing of commercial fuel. So one of the things we are planning to do is recycling. So we're planning to take some of that spent fuel coming out of the existing fleet and then recycle it and use it as feedstock fuel for our reactors. And then eventually we'll also recycle the fuel that's coming out of our reactors. So we have that capability with a, it's, as I said, we have a fast reactor, so that has the capability to um, reuse that fuel in an efficient way. Does that change the volume of the nuclear waste or just the makeup of it? A little bit of both. So it changes the makeup of it in the sense that what you end up disposing of now are just what we call fission products. So right now when spent fuel comes out of a reactor, it has in it uranium, plutonium, actinides, which are higher level elements. It has the fission products. Um, When we do the recycling, we're going to keep the major actinides and the the transuranics together uh, along with the uranium and the plutonium and so what will be left as fission products. So it does change the makeup of it a bit um, and it does reduce the uh, amount of waste. Right, okay. So going back to the current fleet, mm-hmm. um, a lot was made of in California that Ga- I think it's Gavin Newsom wanted to shut down like their last reactor. Diablo Canyon. Yeah, and they haven't. That's correct. So was the reason... Uh, to close it down, not so much that it was aging. Was that more of a political reason? And yeah. you would say this, what you say, this reactor is absolutely fine to carry on for another 20 years? Yeah, in fact, it is, it is for sure. Um, they're planning to keep it operational for at least another five years beyond the lifetime. I would hope that that would go for further than that. But yes, that plan is perfectly capable of continuing to operate. And that's a political, political reasons over there, you know, that... California's, California's um, <laughs> it's, it's an internal issue. You must bang your head against the wall, though. Think, what are you doing? Um, it's, yeah, it's frustrating a bit sometimes looking yeah. at how decisions are made, but that's true of everywhere. Do, do these uh, older reactors, do, is there any issue with recruitment of staffs, like human resource, or is there plenty of people wanting to come into the industry? So that's a good question too. Um, we, the, the industry as a whole, does a lot of work in terms of training workforce. And we interface with um, local colleges, community colleges, things like that, to help make sure that we have programs in place to train the people we need. Now, as we go forward and we build out more and more reactors in the United States, which I certainly hope we will do, um, and expect that we will do, workforce is going to be an issue. We're going to need to get more people trained up to operate the reactors. Construction workforce is a big deal. I mean, the amount of infrastructure that we are going to need to build out is just going to be enormous. So um, we think there could be, for example, in the United States, upwards of 160 gigawatts of new nuclear built between now and 2050. That's an enormous amount of number of machines. What does that compare to the current fleet? So current fleet is about 90 uh, gigawatts. So what's that, about 150%, 160% increase? Uh-huh. Yeah, wow, okay. And in terms of the skills, you said, say, for construction, but are those specialist construction skills? Some yes, some no. Yeah. It depends. And so what we're seeing with some of the newer reactor designs like ours, we're moving into smaller machines that are going to be easier to build, easier to construct, and not be these um, mega projects. 
So down in Georgia, we're building, completing, I should say, two reactors, Vogel 3 and 4. They're a Westinghouse AP1000 plants, fabulous plants. They're currently, AP1000s are currently operating in China. Um, what Southern companies should be bringing online these two plants this year uh, down there. But they are mega projects, huge projects, huge construction projects. Um, and that's a challenge in the United States. So what you're seeing with small modular reactors, all advanced reactor companies are looking at smaller machines that'll be easier to construct, move as much of that fabrication as we can back into a factory setting, and then just ship stuff to the site and install it. Wow. Will it almost be the case that uh, multiple locations could have almost identical reactors? They should, yes. They should. Yeah, in fact, the Vogel 3 and 4, so you're going to see down there in Georgia um, at the Vogel plant, they have currently two reactors operating, then three or four are 100% identical. Wow. Okay. So when you, I mean, you, you said earlier that you work for the the trade association. I did yeah. previously, yes. Yeah. The green lobbyists have been very effective at scaring people off of nuclear energy. I, I mean, especially in Europe. Uh, I mean, Germany tried to shut down, I think, their last three reactors. They've had to keep them going. Right. Um, where do you think the nuclear industry itself has failed in countering their arguments? Because from everyone I've spoken to, Actually, the green lobbyists should probably be pro-nuclear because nuclear is the best opportunity we have to decarbonize. You're seeing a lot right now over the last few years, well, not few anymore, last five to 10 years, a big shift um, with climate change and carbon reduction being the key, infra, key and um, challenge. You're seeing a lot of support for nuclear now, especially in the United States with a number of the other organizations out there. Um, so I think the momentum behind nuclear is growing more and more with climate change. Uh, so I think we're in a very good path moving forward to build out a lot more nuclear to do provide that zero carbon emitting energy, you know, 24-7, 365. This show is brought to you by Ledger. And now with everything that's happened in Bitcoin over the last few months, it again highlighted the importance of self-custody and why Ledger is such an important company for the industry. Now, I have been using a Ledger Nano S since 2017, since when I got back into Bitcoin. And I'm still using that same Ledger Nano S now. I've still got, I literally got it here set with me right now. Now, with Ledger, you have industry-leading security built into the Ledger device. And also, they have got a new device coming soon. It's called a Stax. It's totally awesome. I've pre-ordered mine. But the Ledger Nano S has been the leading hardware device for people to store their Bitcoin for years now. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, fast withdrawals, and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. And from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today 
without selling their Bitcoin. Now, Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer. I've been using Ledin since they became a sponsor, and I absolutely love the service. Now, if you want to find out more about this, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. So you feel like there is like a changing tide? Oh, it's changed. The tide has changed. I mean, we're seeing a lot of activity going on in the United States. We've seen um, with Congress uh, here um, bipartisan bills passed, uh, huge support from the government in, well, just in the last two years, there was a bipartisan um, the Infrastructure Act, yeah. uh, Infrastructure Bill, and then the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed last year. So the inflation Infrastructure Bill was the previous year. Um, both of those provided huge support for nuclear, as well as other renewable sources, production tax credits and things like that. And here in the United States, we have a program, the Department of Energy has a program called the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, which was funded by Congress. And you're seeing two reactors that are going to be demonstrated by 2030, one in Wyoming, one in Washington State, uh, by companies TerraPower in Wyoming and X Energy in Washington State. Then you see private entities like ours, Oaklo, developing a reactor. We plan to have ours operational at Idaho National Laboratory in 2026. And then um, there's a number of other companies developing reactors that are going to be operational here in the U.S. before 2030. And these are new designs. Okay, we're going to get into that. The um, was it 160 gigawatt? You said it was going to come online. That's what an estimate is. So we the uh, nuclear industry. Um, NEI went out and talked to its member companies and got an estimate of about 90 gigawatts of new nuclear that could be deployed between now and 2050. There's been some other estimates as high as 100, 300 gigawatts of new nuclear, and so 160 or so is kind of a round number. But you know, these are estimates. Yeah, they're never accurate. Yeah, but the point is you're seeing a lot of interest in building out new nuclear uh, in addition to the fleet, which ultimately will have to be replaced. Yeah, and just to give the listeners some perspective and understanding, myself as well, um, 160 gigawatt, when you say that number, is that a daily amount, an annual amount? Oh, so when I say gigawatts, that's the amount of power being produced instantly. So it's the amount of power that's coming out of the plant. At um, a constant rate. rate. Yep. Okay. And so to give us an idea of perspective, what is the kind of uh, the amount about that America needs, kind of amount of energy it needs to be produced? Okay. So um, I said that right now the fleet in the United States produces about 90 gigawatts of power. Yeah. Um, we currently supply about 19 to 20% of the electricity in the U.S. So of the U.S. electricity consumption, 19 to 20% of that's nuclear. So you can kind of do the math. So, and so about 450. Yeah, yeah, something like that probably. Interesting. Um, there has been a big decline in investment in nuclear over the last couple of decades. Maybe not just now, but there had been a period of decline. Um, in terms of regulation... How how much did that call? How how much did that contribute to the kind of decline in uh, investment? And is regulation changing to help with new reactors coming online? Because, and, and, and again, 
more of a broader question. Is the regulation now still too tight? Well, I'm not going to say it's too tight. It's um, you need strong regulations to, you know, we have a very robust regulatory system in the United States, a very safe operating fleet in the United States. um, And that's a joint effort between the regulator and the industry. Now, where the challenge comes in is becoming efficient in doing the regulatory procedures, licensing new reactors efficiently, um, giving credit where credit is due for new designs that are more inherently safe than the existing fleet. Um, The investment right now in new nuclear is enormous. Uh, It's hard for me to comment about previous investment, but right now the investment going on in new nuclear is just enormous. And the regulator is um, trying to get prepared. There's more work to be done there to become more efficient there. And to me, I'm convinced that each of the designs out there, ours and the others, will be able to be licensed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the U.S. Um, And in fact, there's an application in front of NRC right now that they're going to finish up in about 24 months. Um, so it's for a test reactor, not a commercial reactor. So I'm convinced the NRC can do it. Now, where the challenge comes in down the road is talking about that 160 gigawatts or so, you know, you're looking at 300 more, 300 reactors or more that need to be built, and that's just for electricity. How does the Nuclear Regulatory Commission get efficient to be able to do that many machines? How does the regulatory system throughout the world be able to become efficient enough to license the number of machines that we need to do to actually combat climate change? Yeah. So what are the parts of the regulatory system that perhaps slow things down? Is it finding locations? Is it the... What, what would slow things... You say it has to kind of like... You're more saying it has to modernize. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so right now, reviews take 24 to 36 months depending on the um, type of design that's out there. And That's a review of the, des- the design of the reactor. Correct. But if, if that is approved, would it still... A nuclear location has to be reviewed again, even if it's... Well, so this is part of what needs to be looked at, is can we do things more efficiently? Environmental issues are obviously a a valid concern everywhere. You need to look at the appropriate environmental things. But can you streamline that effort, especially as you get down to smaller machines? Can you streamline the environmental reviews? Can you streamline the um, safety reviews for subsequent machines? So, you know, you license the first one, then you do the second one, third one, fourth one, fifth one, tenth one. How can we take advantage of what we've already done in a very efficient way? Yeah, because two to three years for the license is a long time. It is. It would seem ludicrous if if you're creating the IKEA of nuclear reactors to actually go through that again. What Do you know how long it takes once that they find a location? So we tend to run... So let me come at it this way. Um, if we look at the advanced reactor demonstration program that DOE is putting, and this is a very efficient program. So the um, the two companies were chosen in 2020. They plan to be operational in 2027, 2028, or by 2030. So you tend to look at about a decade from the time you say go um, with us and have a site to the time you have a reactor up and running. And that's going to be reduced quite a bit. I mean, we are, we're hoping... We believe our reactor, again, and we're designing, by the way, I should have said this earlier, we're designing machines that are up to 15 megawatt 
electric, whereas the Vogel plants are like 1,100 megawatt electric. So we're designing small machines. We believe we can build those in about a year. Okay, so just hmm. when you say when you've got go on the site, but but I'm, I kind of want to understand the entire timescale. So say a city is considering uh, a new, new mm-hmm. reactor and, and they have to find a site. So it's almost just from the point of going, okay, we want a reactor. For, is that is it then 15 years or is it 12 years? Uh, no, it's... So you're going to have to... You say you want a reactor, okay, then you have to find a site. Um, that's probably not going to take too long to do. Because okay. you'll have... You'll know what the infrastructure is. You'll look at things like transmission, distribution, stuff like that, how you're going to connect it up to the grid. So you find your site, then you'll have to prepare the license application that goes into NRC. So you pick a company that already has a design, you still have to prepare a license application to go into the NRC. That's probably a year, year and a half. Then from there you go on and put it in front of NRC. You're looking two to three years now, uh, hopefully two years or less to get that done. Then you start construction, depending on the plant design, something like ours, you're looking at about a year. Others, you could be looking two to four years. So you can see how that time frame yeah, I see, goes I see. out. Yeah. Um, it would. I guess there would be a, a different constraint on you if they streamlined everything and they could... Uh, move to the point where they give you the nod and a reactor can be up in a year. If you suddenly got an order mm-hmm. yourself for like 10 to 15 of them, how do you as a company resource up? There would there would be constraints on the company themselves. Well, of course, but it's not like you're going to have this instantaneously. You're going to see it coming. So yeah. we're, we're engaged with multiple potential customers out there and looking at what their needs are and understanding it. So... To your point, we all have to scale up yeah. as necessary to be able to deliver the machines. And that's going to be that's a challenge for the industry as a whole. But we do know when there is a need, governments can scale. When they suddenly require a vaccine or they suddenly require masks or they suddenly require the aviation industry to shut down. Like we have seen governments react very quickly to a pressing need. Now, if the government believes there is a pressing need to decarbonize the atmosphere, then I think the incentive there is to happen. The incentive, that would help. Um, There's a huge incentive right now for private companies to move forward. And private companies, I think, can scale up faster than the government can. Of course. And, um, you know, companies like ours are doing that. What you're also seeing, and this is where it gets kind of interesting, is for a second. So we've been talking about electricity generation. So nuclear can do more than just electricity. Okay. So you're looking at chemical industries, oil industries that need a lot of process heat. So right now they create process heat. Process heat is basically steam, high temperature steam. They do that by burning fossil fuels, natural gas, for example. Well, they need to decarbonize, so they're going to have to move to something else. And to do that, to create process steam, uh, process heat, you're not going to be able to really use wind or solar. So nuclear is a great opportunity there. Last year, Dow Chemical made an announcement that it's teaming up with X Energy to do uh, an X Energy reactor to do process heat for them. And so they're looking at solving their carbon emissions challenges uh, with nuclear. And you're seeing it on other industries as well. 
Hmm. There's one question I've not asked about nuclear before, but kind of comes to mind right now. When you talk about the, uh, the reactors producing steam, does this mean the reactors have a high demand for water or is the steam re- recycled? Uh, so uh, right now, the way electricity is done, you have water that flows through with the existing fleet. Um, you have water that flows through the reactor, it gets heated up, it goes to a steam generator. It creates steam. So you have water, cold water that comes into the steam generator. It gets heated up by the water from the reactor, turns to steam, goes to the turbine, rotates the turbine, you get electricity. Then that water is cooled back down, that steam's cooled back down into water. So those two loops, if you will, are closed. Um, We do use a body of water, a lake, a river, or cooling towers, for example, to do that condensing back, condense that steam back to water. Uh, Some of the newer designs can use um, what we call air, air, um, uh, use air, forced air to do that condensation. So the water usage can be actually quite minimal. Okay. Is that why they're often by the sea? Uh, Yes, that's a lot of cases because you have to have some sort of way to condense that steam back down to water. So they need to be near a body of water or have a cooling tower, which of course still needs to have water associated with it. But as I said, uh, we're looking at New Scale, for example, is going to build a reactor out at Idaho National Laboratory, and that's going to use air to condense the steam back to water. And so they'll, and out west here in the U.S., uh, water consumption is a huge issue. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a big issue for every place in the world, but for us, it's a major problem. Well, it's because the uh, size of the country, the amount of people live in land, and the amount of people live quite a distance from water resources. Uh, right. And we've seen, you know, the Colorado River is running very, very low. So we've got some huge challenges. Huh. Okay, let's, let's learn a little bit more about these uh, fast reactors that you've talked about. In terms of land space, because you say they're, you know, they're much smaller. In terms of land space, how much do they need and what is that in comparison to a traditional reactor? Uh, well, so it depends on the size of the reactor. So um, our reactor, which I said is up to about 15 megawatt electric, we're looking at less than a half an acre to build the plant on. So not much. Um, the Vogel 3 and 4 plants, which are 1,100 gigawatt electric, I don't know how many acres they need, but it's not a great deal. Okay. Certainly not compared to, say, the amount of land you would need for comparable um, wind or solar. Of course, yeah. Is there restrictions about how close you can be to homes? and That all comes into the environmental considerations. So there's no firm restrictions on how close you can be. So research reactors at universities are sitting in cities in many cases. Huh. I didn't even, hadn't even thought about research reactors. Oh, yeah. They're, they're there. But I guess, I mean, I guess if it's safe for people to work at these, mm-hmm. is there any increased risk to somebody working? No. Zero? No. Yeah. So if you can work there, you can live near. I mean, some people won't want to live near one. Yeah. They, they've been, um, most of the reactors in the United States have tend to be built in, um, less populated areas, uh, but that's not going to be the case necessarily moving forward. Okay, so in terms of your design, it goes up to 15. We're up to 15 megawatt electric. Do you have a single design that has a range of output it can do, or is it multiple designs? So right now we're focusing on kind of a single design, but you know, you're looking at what the customer wants. We're looking at what the market needs. What does 15 megawatts mean? Like, how many people can that provide power for? Well, so the average home in the United States uses about 1.2 kilowatts. So 
15, you know, 15 megawatts, I'd have to do the math because I'm not, so what? 15 megawatts, 15,000 divided by 1.2. So somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15,000 homes. Okay. So you'd need multiple in every city? Yeah. So we're not necessarily... Our, our reactor is not necessarily going to be used to power a large city. Um, our reactor is going to be used by different customers that need something. So let's take use Bitcoin as a good example. Um, you have, and I'm going to refer to them generically as data centers because it's mm-hmm. computationally intensive. Um, so you have a certain amount of power that you need there. A reactor like ours could potentially supply all of that power that you need. Um, Data centers uh, need varying amounts of power. And so depending on the company and what their desires are and what their needs are, the reactor like ours could fit that. Also smaller locations um, where you may, um, remote locations, for example, where you bring in diesel fuel that use small power, uh, less power could um, be powered by us. Uh, Military bases are another good example. Okay, so your customers aren't really... It seems like your service is more the private sector, and you would suit maybe Google could be a customer. Absolutely, something like that. So so you have the large utilities like Southern Company that's building the two Vogel plants, so they provide power to you know, everyone as a whole. You're seeing a lot of companies now that want to look at securing their own power. Um, and so not be relying upon the grid. You're seeing the Department of Defense thinking about that for air, military bases as well. So not being relying upon the grid, being self-sustaining, and companies like ours with our 15-megawatt reactor could provide that power. And I guess someone like Tesla who moved to Texas, we you know, there was a big issue in Texas uh, a year ago, was it? No, a couple, a couple of years, years ago. A couple of years ago. You're talking about the winter yeah. storm. Yep. So I guess they'll be saying, well, we could de-risk this for us. Mm-hmm. Um, is it cost-effective for them as well? So... Um, Our machine is going to be able to be cost-effective relative to what's currently provided. So we also are approaching this from a unique perspective of a build-own-operate model. So we're going to build the reactors, operate them, and then sell power. That's a little bit different than the other companies. But at the end of the day, all of the companies, nuclear companies, are developing machines that will be cost-effective. So say if it was a Tesla, they wouldn't buy the reactor from you. They would buy the power output from the reactor. From For, in our case, yeah, yes. In your case, yes. In another case, they would probably buy, um, could buy the power directly from somebody else, uh, and they have another person that operates the reactor. Can you talk about how much one of these costs to construct? Uh, no, not really. Uh, it's hard for me to answer that question at the moment. Like, a re- like I've got zero. I don't know if we're talking about 100 million, a billion, 10 billion. So for something like small reactors, um, micro reactors, as they're called, you know, less than 50 megawatt electric, uh, you're going to be looking in the hundreds of millions. Yeah, um, we should get one, Danny. <laughs> something like, um, something like uh, the Vogel plants are in the billions. These are private nuclear reactors for private businesses. Does anything like this exist now, or is everything just large-scale reactors providing the grid? 
Right now in the United States, it's large-scale reactors providing the grid. Um, you have a lot of research reactors, small reactors that are operating at universities and national laboratories. We do, of course, the military, the Navy, has micro-reactors that are powering its ships, aircraft yeah. carriers, and submarines. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's a whole new business model. Mm -hmm. It is. Well, and, and you're seeing this because of... You know, the climate conversation, the climate change, the urgency associated with that is driving companies to look at new solutions. They need to decarbonize their operations. Um, the oil sector needs to decarbonize its operations. There's still going to be a need for oil going forward, no doubt about that. But they need to decarbonize the manner in which they extract that oil out of the ground and they process it. And so nuclear can do that too. Yeah, I mean, we still need oil for planes, but if we can get to a point where we're not burning oil for... You're still going to need it for things like um, plastics and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, but I think it's getting away from burning oil to power the grid. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing exactly. seems very wasteful. Well, and there's not oil, I mean, to be honest, oil's not used a great deal for powering the grid, certainly not in the U.S. I mean, that's coal, natural gas, wind, solar, hydro, nuclear. This show is brought to you by Casa. Now, whether you've bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person that should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin, it doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it super easy. And getting started is simple. Just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need assistance, it's only a phone call away. And Casa has the best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. And I have been using Casa. I've been using their multi-sig for two years now. I absolutely love it. Now, it is time for you to take financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. -A. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But again, I'm only buying right now. We're hodlers. We've seen the bottom of the market. We've seen this through, right? Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have Wasabi, who I am using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You do also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There's also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this is so much easier. So if you want to find out more about this, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O.
I guess if we get get away from coal as well and natural gas. Coal is dropping. Um, natural gas is, so right now in the U.S., 20% of the electricity is nuclear, about 20% of it's renewables, and that's a combination of... Uh, this is the U.K. I don't, there may be something like this for the U.S., but I don't know. Yeah, there is. So you're looking, let me see here, uh, 18% is other sources. So you're 13% nuclear... 47% renewables. So in the U.S., we're 20% renewables, 20% nuclear, and then the remainder is split between coal and natural gas. We've got a lot of transfers there as well, though. So I guess probably the stuff from France is nuclear, you'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and for us, we, don't, we do import. Um, so states like New York will import from Canada, but for the most part, we generate what we have. I mean, 13% nuclear... Mm -hmm. What would the definition of be renewable be? No waste? I mean, I don't know what that would be, and especially not in, in their context. I don't know what they mean. Well, so renewables have a tendency to mean wind, solar, hydroelectric, uh, or maybe even biomass. It's unfortunate. Nuclear is carbon-free, just like those other energy sources are. Yeah. We should all be treated the same. And what we're seeing in the United States now is finally you're seeing legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act that treat all of them the same. So looking at production tax credits that cover clean energy sources, not renewables. I see some would argue it's not clean because of the nuclear waste, which we'll get to. But uh, This is actually a good way to put in context the gigawatt hours because the current demand in the UK is 40 gig. So it's like five times the amount of power that the UK demands right now will be coming online in nuclear. Is that right? Huh. No, uh, four times. Four times. So, you're, so your demand is 30 gigawatts, 40 gigawatts. And I said right now in the U.S., we're about generating about 90 gigawatts with nuclear. Right. So we're generating considerably more than what your country needs as a whole. Yeah. But, but I, think, I think charts like this are misleading. I think charts like this are not helping us because the term renewable, I mean, I, I don't know how, if you could argue that nuclear is renewable, but maybe you could certainly argue renewable is green. You can definitely argue zero carbon. And I think that would be better. Fossil fuel or, or carbon, zero carbon. What would, what would biomass be? Is that low carbon or is that just... I really don't know. Well, I think they... I'm not an expert on it, but I think the idea is um, you have material, biomass material that had captured carbon and then when you burn it, you're releasing carbon, so you're neutral, right. carbon neutral. Yeah, so you probably just want to have carbon, zero carbon. I don't know, just, it, it needs to be less emotion. This is emotive. It's fossil fuels is, is emotive because they've been um, demonized. Uh, renewables is emotive because it's like, it's, it's for environmentalists and... Uh, other sources is just like is confused, whereas if this was a practical, like a practical chart based on the goals of uh, decarbonizing the world, then you would just want to say, you just want to separate them from carbon, uh, carbon negative to car well, yeah, carbon to zero carbon. Yeah, uh, yeah agreed. Yeah, and and within that you could do different designations because you're seeing right now um, also moving away from coal to natural gas is um, that's a carbon reduction. So natural gas tends to be less carbon emitting than coal does. Yeah, it's just somebody just needs to do a better job of this. You know who'd be good at that? That Alex Epstein guy. Hmm. 
he'd be pretty good at that. And those transfers, you kind of want to know, but I wonder how much that transfer has gone up. Is, this, is there any time scale to this? Can you I see? I mean, this is live. I don't know. Yeah, oh, here can... you go. Past week. Well, let's do past year. Oh, fascinating. So I want to see transfers over the past year. So we've actually given power to France over the last year. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Transfer. Okay. So go to that transfers chart. What's that? What's the red line on that? France. Yeah. Look at that. And then. So maybe that's when their nuclear fleet was being repaired. Yeah. They did have a number of shutdowns, I think, as for maintenance. But so we're sending power to France and then look at that red line. Shoot that. Shoot up right at the end of the year, Danny. But that's probably when I guess their nuclear came back online. It's, I would imagine it's the cheapest place to get transfers from because it's so close. Yeah, but it's also at the end of the year where we, you know, everything changed. That's going, what, November yeah. 2022? Where, where's that lowest dip? November 22? Yeah, end of November. From November 22 to where's the peak? Uh, end of the year. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think that's, I think that's that requirement that we suddenly had. Um, interesting. So, can you tell me a little bit about, and this is more for my own fascination, uh, how a reactor works? How does it do its job? Sure. Uh, so, you have reactors use uranium. And uranium, when you, when you dig it out of the ground, it has primarily two, we call isotopes, two versions of uranium. One called uranium-235, one called uranium-238. Uranium-235 is 0.7% of the uranium when you dig it out of the ground. So we need to enrich that, increase the amount of U-235. So for a reactor like ours, we need to take it up to about 20% U-235, the remainder being U-238 in simple terms. The fleet currently takes it up to about 5%, and then the remainder is U-238. Okay? How do you do that? How do you enrich it? Uh, so when you dig it out of the ground, I'll start from scratch. When you dig it out of the ground, um, it ends up in a form called yellow cake. You yep. may have heard that yeah, term. I have, yeah. um, and that's because it basically looks like yellow powder. Then you ship that off to what we call a conversion facility where you take it and you convert it into a gas called uranium hexafluoride. Then you take that gas and you send it to an enrichment facility, which typically uses centrifuges. So a salad spinner like you would have at home to you know get the water out basically that's what a centrifuge is you run the gas in it spins it really fast and then the heavier atoms like the u238 and the difference is minimal between 238 and 235 three neutrons but it'll move to the outside a little bit and you can separate out and then you can enrich up the u235 um, so basically a giant salad spinner, if you will, centrifuge. And, and is the uranium dangerous when it's mined? No. Huh. Not, no. Not from, a, not from a radiation perspective, no, not at all. No. How the hell do they figure this out? See that yellow stuff in the ground? If we spin it in the centrifuge, we can use it to make nuclear energy. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's impressive. Uh, and so then we take it after that's enriched, we take it to a fuel fabrication facility and we create fuel assemblies. So okay. fuel assemblies are basically, um, we'll have fuel pellets. So we'll have um, little pellets of um, uranium dioxide in tubes of metal, zircaloy tubes. You take a bunch of those tubes and they're at the end of the day about the size of a pencil, a little bit bigger than a pencil. You put a bunch of those tubes together in what we call an assembly. So a square assembly with a bunch of tubes in them and then put those in the reactor. Now in the reactor, what happens is you have neutrons that will hit the uranium-235 atom, 
and then split it, fission it. So the uranium-235 atom will split into two pieces, two or three pe two pieces, and you'll get off of it two or three neutrons that come out. And then what you need is one of those neutrons to go on and split another uranium-235 atom to create that chain reaction. And that's called, um, that's the fission process. And so when that happens, then as it fissions, it creates a lot of heat. The heat is what heats up the water. So the uranium dioxide pellets in the tubes get hot. That heat is transferred over to the water, the coolant, which then goes over to the steam generator. If you could see it, is anything visually happening? No, you cannot see the reaction occurring. And so those fuel rods go down into the water, mm -hmm. and but all the reactions are happening like above, heating. So your active fuel zone, so a fuel assembly for a commercial light water reactor is about um, 14 feet long. Uh, 12 feet of that is what we call the active fuel zone. And in a reactor, so you'll put those fuel assemblies in water, so let me, you have the fuel assemblies that go into the water, yeah. into the reactor, um, and then within that 12-foot active fuel zone is where the reaction occurs. Okay, so, but, but the, the simple science of this is you're heating up rods. Mm -hmm. And that heats up a coolant. That heats up a coolant, and that creates steam that mm -hmm. powers a turbine. Yep. It doesn't sound like a complicated bit, bit of kit, but when I... You look at a nuclear reactor, it's huge. What, what's everything that's going into that? Then? Well, you have a lot of safety systems and things like is, that. Is so, that what and, it is? And in the case of um, the water-cooled reactors, they're under very high pressure because we have two versions of reactors in the United States. Um, we call pressurized water reactors or boiling water reactors. In both cases, they are very high pressure. In the case of the pressurized water reactor, the water in the core never boils. So it just remains solid, but it's very hot. It's like if you had a pressure cooker on your stove or the one pot or something where you keep everything under pressure and the water doesn't boil inside. It's the same concept except much higher pressure. Um, in a boiling water reactor, we let the water boil a bit and produce the steam in the top portion of the reactor. However, it's still under high pressure. Now, for some of the new designs, like the one we're working on, liquid metal, we're operating at basically atmospheric pressure. I don't need to keep things at high pressure. I'm operating at atmospheric pressure. As a result, I don't need large pressure-retaining systems. It, when I was looking into aircrafts, I, I, I believe this, like most aircrafts have now like seven redundancy systems in place to ensure that whatever happens, that plane can keep flying. Is that similar with a nuclear reactor, a number of redundancy systems? I don't know the exact number, but there are definitely redundancy systems throughout. What, what are the main safety features of a nuclear? What are the things that you have to prepare for? Well, you have to prepare for um, loss of... Um, like uh, loss of heat sink, so where you're not able to reject the heat. Um, so you have to be able to deal with that. Um, and that's probably your primary issue. You have to deal with natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, uh, tornadoes, and stuff like that. But the, the heat sink, that was the issue that happened at Chernobyl, right? Uh, Fukushima. Fukushima? Yeah. Okay. So when they lost the... when they 
Tsunami came and wiped out everything. They had no more active cooling on the reactor. Uh, it's the cooling. And so the overheat creates the pressure that can cause the blow-off event. Uh, the overheat resulted in water boiling in the reactor yeah. and steam production. So for uh, machines like ours and some of the other advanced reactors, you're never going to get in that situation um, because they can go indefinitely without operator intervention. Excellent. In terms of waste, mm-hmm. that's another concern that people bring up. This was one that I was confused about yesterday with Anthony. I, uh, he said, was it for a year, that the, the can thing? Was it a year or no, your that lifetime? Was in, in your lifetime, he said, the amount of nuclear waste one person produces would fit in a can of Coke or whatever. Mm, yeah. But I, I was like, okay, but the current population of the US is 300 and whatever, 20 million. That's 320 million cans of Coke. But every year, new people are being born. So... You know, when you start to talk in hundreds of millions, like one on its own is not a lot, it feels like a lot of waste. All of the waste that's been generated, spent fuel, I should say, that's been generated in the United States could sit on an American football field at about probably less than 10 yards deep. Oh, really? It's not, it's not at the end of the day that much material. Okay. Because it is so energy dense in terms of the amount of power that you get out of it relative to the amount of, say, coal or natural gas that's got to be burned. Uh, And I don't know those statistics off the top of my head, but if you go to NEI's website, NEI.org, you can find comparisons between how much um, power comes out of one pellet of uranium versus how many barrels of oil versus things like that. Yeah, he did say the waste from coal is a lot higher. You have um, you have a lot of waste that comes out, yes. Huh. And you mentioned earlier that you worked on casket. I worked on dry cast storage systems. So basically the containers that we put the used, we actually call it used fuel instead of spent fuel because we're going to be able to be reusing it. Um, the containers that we put the used fuel in to sit on site after they come out of the spent fuel pool. So... That's the kind of thing that would become part of dealing with waste ongoing. Yeah, so basically on the back end of the fuel cycle right now, you operate the reactor. When you shut down and you go into a refueling, you pull fuel assemblies out, the ones that you're going to discharge. You pull them out, you put them into a spent fuel pool. They sit there for maybe five years. Then they come out of the spent fuel pool and they go into a dry cask storage system. So what is a dry cask yeah. storage system? It is basically a... See um, if you can find one, Danny. Yeah, actually, you can pull one up pretty easily there. Um, it's basically a steel cylinder. Inside of it, there's going to be a what we call a basket. That's actually the same as what's in the spent fuel pool. So think of an egg crate Mm -hmm. where you have a structure and you put the eggs in. This is going to be a metal structure and you're going to put the fuel assemblies in it. Yep, those are some good images of quite a few different kinds. Um, The canister goes then inside of what we call an overpack. So the overpack can be steel, concrete, or a mix of steel and concrete. Concrete's cheap and easy and a great radiation shield. And then it just sits there. It's passively safe. There are no active systems in it. There are no moving parts in this. Um, There will be some airflow, uh, so uh, entry points for air to come in, say, at the bottom, go past the container to remove heat and come out the top, but it just sits there. Okay, and and, and its its goal is to just block radiation? 
Correct. And let yeah. the fuel sit there until such time as a repository, deep geologic repository is open and you'll move that fuel to the deep geologic repository and uh, ultimately dispose of it. Do these, those sites already exist? So in the United States, no, okay. we don't have one. Um, Who do you send it to? Well, right now it stays at the site. Okay. So ultimately the federal government in the United States, ultimately the federal government's going to take it and dispose of it. Or companies like ours are going to take some of that fuel and then recycle it. And then that waste would ultimately go to a deep geologic repository. But company countries, Finland, for example, is um, and Sweden both are making great progress on deep geologic repositories right now. And so explain what that is, a deep geological repository. I mean, I can, I can tell what it is from the description, but what is the work that's going into this? So a deep geologic repository is basically tunnels in the earth at certain depths where you will store the material you want to store. And then you put it in there and then you close it off and you leave it. This was all discussed in the fifth risk. Was it? Yeah. So I read this book called The Fifth Risk, which I brought up on the show a bunch of times. But this was one of the jobs that the, the federal government does and that you would want them to do. It's, um, it is ultimately, uh, the, the federal government certainly is a good, comp good organization to do it. We do have, a, there's a private company called Deep Isolation, which is actually looking at deep geologic, deep geologic disposal using borehole technology. Uh, so there's some private entities looking into this as well. What about in the seabed? Um, that has certainly been looked at in the past. Um, that brings in a whole lot of other political considerations. Yeah. I just can't see a scenario where it would ever happen, even if it was proven to be 100% safe. I think... Uh, I think people would have too much fear about it. Well, I, safety is not the concern there. It's going to be more of the political challenges. And I don't begin yeah. to understand, um, you know, territorial waters, international waters, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, can you tell me anything about fusion? Because you'll probably know more than I do, but I've been following it with great interest. I saw the recent uh, advancement where they said that they'd, uh, for the first time, got more power out than they put in. Yeah, so that's the Lawrence Livermore facility, yeah. um, which uses uh, lasers to hit a, a small pellet, if you will. And they got um, a little bit more power out of the fusion reaction than the amount of, if I get this correct, the amount of energy that the lasers imparted upon it. Now, you still needed a whole lot more power to generate the whole facility, operate the facility. Course, yeah. So at the end of the day, you didn't generate, I don't think, more power than what was truly gone into it. But more power came out of the fusion than the lasers imparted upon it. Um, the fusion industry is fascinating. Yeah. Um, but the big issue with fusion is we don't know if it ultimately will work. What is what are the what are the uh, barriers they think that will stop it working? Is it the the amount of plasma holding something at that heat? Well, so you're having to, in in simple terms, for a second, recreate the conditions of the sun. Okay, because the sun is a giant fusion machine. Yeah, um, and so you need to create that condition. You can do it a couple different ways. Um, you you have to get that immense amount of heat which will permit your typically deuterium and tritium atoms to fuse together, and then they'll release energy. They also release a number of neutrons when they do that, but they'll release the energy that way. But you have to get that immense 
um, heat. Now, one of the things that's enabled fusion right now, um, it's been a great advancement for fusion over the last, say, decade or more, has been the advancements in laser technology and advancements in um, uh, superconducting magnets and things like that. So you need to have magnetic fields, for example, in some cases, not all, magnetic fields to control the reaction hmm. and, and heat it up. I'm not a fusion expert, um, but, but, that's, but the, the, amount of, the number of companies doing fusion is enormous. Well, compared to me, you're a fusion expert. Uh, well, uh, but do, you, do you think they'll do it? I think we'll. I think we'll know a lot more within the next ten years. I think within this decade, we'll have some very good ideas whether it's going to be viable or not. There's a massive amount of investment going into. There is, and there's yeah. a lot of companies. Uh, the UK has at least one or two companies doing it. Canada does. US has a number of companies doing it. Um, do you, have, do you have any friends in Fusion? We'd love to talk to them. Uh, I do, actually. I can. We might tap you up for that. Yeah, put you in contact with some. And then there's a, an entire association. So I mentioned the Nuclear Energy Institute, which I worked at, Trade Association for the Commercial Nuclear Power Industry. There's also the Fusion Industry Association in the U.S. If Fusion is successful, there's a chance that that, uh, over a long enough time frame, ends the fission industry because it's lower risk, right? So it produces, there is some waste that comes out, but not the same. What kind of waste? Well, at the end of the day, I mentioned when you have fusion, um, typically, not all the time, not everybody's design, but most of the designs will have um, used deuterium and tritium, and as a result, you get neutrons out. Neutrons will activate material. So you'll get some radioactive material from the structures around it. But you don't get the... um, byproducts that you do from fission. Because in fission, we're splitting the atom, creating what we call fission products that are radioactive. In fusion, you're just combining two things. So it is less waste. Um, But as I said, at the end of the day, we have to prove it works. And then... Commercialize it. Exactly. You have to make a machine that is commercially viable. So it's one thing to prove it, like they did at Livermore, and get a little bit more energy out than they put in. It's a whole different ball game to then take it and commercialize it. Fifty but years. <laughs> I actually, like I said, I think we'll know a lot more within the within this decade. All right. Well, listen, look, it's been super fascinating. Uh, I really just want to uh, end on asking, what's coming in the future? Is there new innovation coming in nuclear that we haven't talked about? Things we should be looking out for. So yeah. So. <laughs> There's, so let me just hit on a few of the things that are occurring in the United States for a second here. Yep. So you got, like, my company um, designed the 15-megawatt liquid metal fast reactor. We're going to deploy at Idaho National Laboratory. You've got the Department of Defense working on a project called Project Pele, which would be a mobile reactor, much smaller in the uh, less than a megawatt range, uh, also to be built at Idaho National Laboratory. And then we have the couple larger projects like a TerraPower Next Energy. TerraPower is a liquid metal fast reactor, much larger though, about 345 megawatt electric. What's neat about them is they're going to attach to it a molten salt thermal storage system. So they're going to be able to peak out at about 500 megawatt electric, say when the solar goes offline. When solar's online, they'd put less than 345 megawatt electric on the grid and use the rest to heat up thermal storage. Then you've got a company, X-Energy, designing a pebble bed high temperature gas reactor. So you've got uh, pebbles instead of the fuel rods I talked about. 
And then we have a company, um, Kairos, doing molten salt. Uh, so they're using molten salt instead of liquid metal or water or gas for the coolant. Um, and they're going to build a test reactor down in Oak Ridge. Uh, we're likely to be the first, planning to be the first commercial machine up and running in 26. Um, but the amount of activity is huge. And then there's GE, um, GE Hitachi doing their small modular reactor, boiling water reactor, planning to build up in Canada by 2030. And then New Scale with their light water reactor, SMR, um, planning to build at Idaho National Laboratory. And I think I've covered just about everything. But wow. it's a lot of activity yeah. between now and 2030. The one thing I would like to just leave with is um, the amount of innovation in this sector is enormous. And the amount of interest and growth is enormous. Um, in the United States, you're seeing it. Bipartisan support from the government level. You're seeing government support in countries like Canada. The UK is focusing heavily on it now, too. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of this development with small modular reactors. And the small modular reactors really offer that opportunity for flexibility in um, size deployment as well as easier to build, cheaper to build. And the fact that you're building something that's Smaller in terms of power production means less capital cost to begin with. And then moving some of that construction in the factory reduces costs further. Um, but the other thing is, and I touched on this a little bit before, is we're going to see a huge um, interest in energy sectors outside of just electricity. Hmm. So desalination, process heat, hydrogen production. Hydrogen for, say, fuel cell vehicles um, instead of electricity. Hydrogen for decarbonizing, say, the steel industry. Hmm. Nuclear can do a lot of this, and it's going to. Fascinating. Okay, if people want to find out more, where would you like to send them to? Um, you can take a look at um, the Nuclear Energy Institute's website, nei.org. It's a good place to start um, in the United States. And then from there, you can get connected with other companies like ours, Oaklo, oaklo.com, and uh, other entities. This was absolutely fascinating. Everett, thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay, what did you make of that? Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy these last couple of nuclear shows? I'm going to let you into a little secret. Over the last few weeks, we've gone through a spell of doing a bunch of non-Bitcoin shows. So we do tend to make these occasionally. We tend to make non-Bitcoin shows. We tend to spread them out. But I said to Danny, let's put them all together, all in one bunch, see what happens, see if people notice, see if people like it, see if people don't like it. Just a little test. So you can feedback to us on that. Let us know what you think. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Let us know the good, the bad. All feedback is welcome. Also, make sure you go and check out our Patreon. There's loads of exclusive content up there. Danny's been refreshing that recently. You can get ad-free shows. You can contribute to shows. You get your shows early. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Also, you can join us on our Discord server. So if you want to go and check that out, that is patreon.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Heading out to New York soon. We're going to be making a bunch of new shows there and also making a bunch of exclusive content for patrons. Okay, listen, hope you have a great week and I will see you all on Wednesday. 